This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than what divides us. I also want to say this month marks the seventh year First Draft has been on the airwaves. All I can say is I'm stunned. The first show aired on June 3rd, 2013. It's been an amazing seven years, and honestly, when I started, I didn't have a vision beyond two episodes. But here I am, and guess how many author interviews have aired? I know you can't answer me right now, so I'll tell you. 297 Yes, 297 interviews. I'm truly incredulous thinking about all the books read and hours spent editing and thinking about these conversations. I feel so incredibly fortunate to be doing this podcast that I love and sharing it with you. So thank you so much for being on this journey with me, whether you began with interview one or are just joining for your first taste of first draft right now. I'm humbled and honored that you are listening, and I offer all the gratitude in my heart to the 297 authors who have said yes to an interview and have spent an hour of their time with us. I look forward to bringing you more conversations in the years to come. Sometimes I dream about seeing all of you in the same room someday. Who knows? Maybe that can happen. Until then, again, thank you for being here to listen. Coming up, an interview with Jane Hirschfield, author of Ledger. All humanity can decide to do something and do it. We can stop. When we recognize the mortality of our choices, we can choose to stop. That's an incredible preview of these longer-term problems that are going to continue to be with us after there is a vaccine. We'll be back with Jane Hirschfield in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 297th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you'll receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. 
please beat the odds of having to listen to this request seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely that you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Jane Hirschfield, author of nine books of poetry, including The Beauty, Come Thief, Given Sugar, Given Salt, and most recently, Ledger. She also wrote two essay collections on poetry and has edited and co-translated four books presenting the work of world poets from the past. She has received multiple awards and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a former chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. She lives in Northern California. Her recent poetry collection, Ledger, chronicles the intimately personal and the widely communal. From climate change to the death of a loved one, the refugee crisis to human hunger, the poems in Ledger investigate the awe and terror of being a mortal human being with all its mystery, beauty, and surprises. We began the interview with me asking Jane Hirschfield this question. I was really struck by your sense of amazement and awe for what a life really is. And I know that a lot of these poems are also about death and mortality and climate change, but I'm just wondering if if you can speak to that at all. Well, I think you have gone straight to the heart of uh, the scales on which I find the world weighed, which is the scale of especially now uh, when one when one thinks about things uh, there's the scale in which you put uh, despair fear of the abyss of the unknown of uncertainty of the darkest parts of human nature which are being revealed and then on the other side of the scale you have not only the human uh, uh, enormous gifts of courage, steadiness, resilience, heroism, but also on that balancing scale, I place the simple astonishment that existence exists and that it is so beautiful because it really is. You know, there is, I have, the two largest things that I have experienced in an immediate way were a forest fire and an earthquake And both of them, along with everything else they are and mean, were extraordinarily beautiful. And I have learned to, when I am facing the abyss, feeling the abyss, I have learned that what is curative for that is to look for the simple astonishment, which is always present, always and so the poems reflect that, both the dark poems and, and the occasional poem of, of uh, radiance or praise. I think the prosaic elements of life do 
hold so much beauty and you capture that a lot in your poetry. And sometimes they are so beautiful because what they are up against. Yes. Well, if if I had a better memory, I could quote, there's some famous line of poetry about how um, the tiger's uh, claw makes the gazelle uh, as lithe and shapely and fast as it is. Um, evolution created both. And what we find beautiful, I think, is very often uh, what holds the value of life. And the most quotidian thing does. You know, you can get lost looking at a bowl if you open your eyes thoroughly enough. Uh, there, There is nothing ordinary that doesn't have the capacity for extraordinariness in it. And I think that's a great deal of why people write, why we write, why we make art, why we paint, is because the very activity of turning in the direction of art is turning in the direction of seeing with more saturation, fullness, amazement, uh, simply the saturated existence that's always here if we can only manage to see it and find it. How do you think you acquired this vision for how you see the world? I know that Buddhism is a big part of of who you are and how you tried to learn about being human in the world. But I'm also curious about maybe something in your childhood or if there was a moment that opened your eyes to look at the world in this way. Well, I wish I could tell you one transformative moment because people love such stories, but I can't. All I can say is... You know, my 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 practice of Zen, both the formal years when I was young and my continuing relationship to it, it has the same taproot as my practice of poetry, as my practice of being a living, breathing human being in relationship to other people and other beings. So rather than it being an experience which changed me, perhaps I should call it a thirst which shaped me that I always felt from earliest childhood that I was thirsty for more. I was thirsty, or not more, but just to know things as they are in their fullness and not to uh, skate over the surface of my life. You said earlier about seeing the forest fire and the earthquake and something that has I've thought a lot about Uh, with the coronavirus is that you can't see it. I mean, if you looked under a microscope and you saw how it worked, I think the beauty of that and the elegance of of how it does what it's supposed to do is, is astonishing as well. But I'm wondering if you've thought about writing about something like this that you can't see. Well, we see what is visible to us at the human level, which is why you know, there's already been a huge outpouring of poems on this subject. There's at least two anthologies that I'm in on the way and several online collections. And, um, and you know, just like after the Sichuan earthquake in China, I heard there were hundreds of thousands of poems written, and I'm sure the same is true for this. And what we see is either mediated by the screen or or intimately and personally, we see the struggles of the providers. We see the exhaustion on the face of a grocery store checker. We see our friends' faces on 
on Zoom or FaceTime or whatever one uses. We see ourselves masked. We see the graphs of deaths. So there's there's plenty of this which is entirely visible to us. And then there is, of course, a great deal which is happening behind the curtain of what any one of us might not be personally connected to, you know, the enormous suffering of those who are actually ill. And from time to time, we read a description of it, um, the enormous suffering of an emergency room doctor who comes home having had eight people die during a 12-hour shift. I don't see that, but I hear about it. And I think, you know, part of the task of a writer is to somehow be able to take in what is invisible to us. You know, there there was a poem circulating. You might have seen it. Um, uh, these things they go through like wildfire, and then they're and then they're gone. Um, uh, it was a poem written in the voice of the virus speaking to humanity. Um, so somebody did that. I think it started in Italy. Um, somebody, somebody did that. We'll, we'll try to speak for everything. Empathy is the great quality of, of art. And to have empathy, you know, it, the virus is simply doing what it evolved to do. It's not um, malicious. It's simply doing what it evolved to do. And I think a thought that I've been having in terms of what is visible and what is not is that uh, the coronavirus, in a way, is giving us a chance to see at visible speed the future we were already headed toward. And so the long, slow unfolding of not only climate change, but the general um, undoing of the biosphere in many ways besides climate change, that has happened relatively slowly. It's relatively hard for any person waking up one day, waking up the next day to track the changes of it. This catastrophe is happening at human speed. And because it is, we have discovered something which we would have said was impossible, which is all humanity can decide to do something and do it. We can stop. When we recognize the mortality of our choices, we can choose to stop. That's an incredible preview of these longer term problems that are going to continue to be with us after there is a vaccine, after there is a treatment, after the coronavirus becomes the stuff of novels and history and case studies in medical schools. We are going to remember that we decided to stop and we did and we could. Some of what you said made me think of your poem, Biophilia, and it's so, oh. it's so short. I'm wondering if you could, you could read it and we could talk about it a little bit. Absolutely. Thank you for, for choosing that one. So this is a little four-line poem which kind of rhymes. Biophilia. Most of us hungry at daybreak, sleepy by dark. Some slept one eye open in water. Some could trot. Some of us lived till morning. Some did not. So this made me think about kind of its extinction and our common understanding of life and fate a little bit and survival. 
but I'm wondering if you want to share. So that that's exactly right. Um, the word biophilia, of course, is a term coined by uh, the entomologist and naturalist and elder wise person uh, E.O. Wilson, who uh, fell in love with ants and snakes in Florida as a boy and spent a lifetime studying these things all the way up and down the scale. And it means, you know, basically what the term indicates is life loves life. Uh, we are drawn to other living beings. It is a quality in us to notice what is alive. And so the us of this poem, as, as clearly becomes uh, evident as it goes on, is not the human us, but the us of all, all living beings. And, you know, most of us hungry at daybreak, sleepy by dark, it begins. And that could be human beings. It is very true of most human beings. Then some slept one eye open in water. You go, oh, oh, I see. Uh, that, that, that's not human beings. That's uh, dolphins and fishes of, of certain kinds. Um, some could trot. Now you've got the creatures of the prairie and the plains. You've got horses and camels. Uh, and then some of us lived till morning. Some did not. And so, yes, it is a poem about fate, about all of our eventual disappearance, because to, to live is to die. But it is meant with its title and with its place in the context of the larger book to bring a certain sense of warmth and solidarity. Um, and also to, in that warmth and solidarity with other living beings who, you know, to trot is a kind of attractive, adorable thing, I think, anyhow. Um, to sleep with one eye open is is interesting, and 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 a feat that none of us humans can manage. It's it's quite astonishing and impressive a thing to be able to do. Um, so it's a poem of affection, and a poem of reminding that there is not one loss which isn't in some way shocking. You know, it's a very plain speaking poem. Some of us lived till morning, some did not. But there's an axe chop in that little some did not. It is meant to be Kafka's uh, literature as an ice axe that opens the frozen sea inside of us. We forget our kinship. We forget our deaths. We human beings, we love to forget lots of things. It is, it is how we get through the day, is by forgetting things which might otherwise paralyze us. But to, remind, to be reminded of those things is not so bad. Um, it's kind of necessary also. In your poem, uh, day beginning with seeing the International Space Station and a full moon over the Gulf of Mexico and all its invisible fish... I got the sense of the randomness yet elegance of evolution and that one thing could have changed everything, sort of the butterfly effect. And what are the things that went wrong in the chain reaction? And, and what are the things that we don't even know didn't go wrong? Can you share about that poem? 
Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say I think you understand it perfectly. Um, should I read it before I talk about it? Because not everyone listening is going to know the poem. Um, day beginning with seeing the International Space Station and the full moon over the Gulf of Mexico and all its invisible fishes. None of this had to happen. Not Florida, not the ibis's beak, not water, not the horseshoe crab's empty body, and not the living starfish. Evolution might have turned left at the corner and gone down another street entirely. The asteroid might have missed. The seams of limestone need not have been susceptible to sand and mangroves. The radio might have found a different music. The hips of one man and the hips of another might have stood beside each other on a bus in Aleppo and recognized themselves as long-lost brothers. The key could have broken off in the lock, and the nail can refused its lid. I might have been the fish the brown pelican swallowed. You might have been the way the moon kept not setting long after we thought it would, long after the sun was catching inside the low wave curls coming in at a certain angle. The light might not have been eaten again by its moving. If the unbearable were not weightless, we might yet buckle under the grief of what hasn't changed yet. Across the world, a man pulls a woman from the water from which the leapt-from overfilled boat has entirely vanished. From the water pulls one child, another. Both are living, and both will continue to live. This did not have to happen. No part of this had to happen. So this is a poem which does contemplate the arbitrariness of both beauty, joy, evolution, the existence of implausible things like horseshoe crabs and starfish, and also the arbitrariness of terrorism, of the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, um, Nothing had to happen, and that is meant to be heard exactly as you described it in your question, both ways. Neither the tragic has to happen, nor did the existence even of water of this planet, of the moon, have to happen. It all could have gone another way. And... For me, the subtext of this idea is the restoration of the sense of choice. Because if none of it had to happen, you might be the person standing off the Isle of Lesbos pulling those refugees from the water rather than the person who sent them into it. So when you start to think about these ideas and formulate them into a poem... Do you, as you're thinking about these ideas, do you think about the structure they need to be in? Or do you kind of start writing first? Like, what was your process for this poem? Well, for this poem, it, 
it began as my poems often do. And, you know, I'm always surprised that some people seem to think I make it all up, uh, just that, you know, pluck things from the air. My poems tend to come from things which have actually happened in my life. So I was working on Captiva Island off the Gulf Coast of Florida at a marvelous place that exists now uh, where Robert Rauschenberg used to have his painting studio and estate. That is now a place where they invite 10 or 12 artists to come and work together for a time there. And uh, one of the other artists, a choreographer, uh, liked tracking the International Space Station, and she told us all, uh, oh, it's going to be visible, you know, tomorrow morning at 4.30 if anybody wants to come down to the to the water with me and, and look for it. And about five of us did. And, you know, it was quite, you whisper when you're doing such a thing. It's not like we would have disturbed anyone else, but you whisper because you're in the presence of awe, those stars that that light moving through the sky that you know some people are actually living on for months. I'm old enough that I don't take this for granted. I remember the first moon landing, you know, 50, 51 years ago now. And so there I was with horseshoe crabs, with starfish, uh, with mangroves, words which would have never appeared in my poems unless I had experience them unless I had some some relationship with them. And the same with Syria. In 2007, I was part of a very small group of writers who went through the Middle East together before gathering with a larger group of writers on Paros in Greece for a symposium on the subject of justice. And Syria at that time was not a country at war. It was a country that had taken in 750,000 refugees from Iraq next door, where the war was. And I have been haunted by Syria. There are other poems in this book that come from having been in Syria, because I spoke to many university students, other writers, a woman anesthesiologist who helped take our group around. And when the war came, I knew immediately that all of those lives were completely overturned. And I am haunted by the thought of those students. Are they dead? Are they alive? Are they in refugee camps? Did they die? Which side were they fighting on? And, and so this is why you have Aleppo show up in the poem. So here you, you have a life, and the life gives you a vocabulary, a dictionary of images, thoughts, places, nouns, verbs, experiences to draw from. Why I then, I don't think it was that very day, but it might have been that very day that I wrote this poem. Um, the title says it is, so perhaps it was. Then a sentence comes, and I don't know what the sentence is going to lead to. And the sentence would have probably been, none of this had to happen. Then I start this odd collaboration of conscious and unconscious uh, conjuring, which is for me the process of writing a first draft, where I'm, it's not as though, it's not like a dream, 
it's not like taking dictation from voices the way Yeats described, but it is a kind of listening to the interior voice. And the interior voice begins to say sentences which are raised into awareness in part by their musicality and their rhythms. They have a tone to them. They have a music. You know if you're listening to a cello or a violin or a flute or a trumpet. You know that. And what you think is what comes within the instrument of this musical invitation. And so sentence follows sentence until I have a first draft. And then after that first draft is done, I look and I see what might I have? What does it say? What is it about? Does it know what it's about? Did it get lost along the way? Does it need some changes? Um, and some poems I revise very little, and some poems I revise 80 or 90 times. And you can't tell looking at the poems. Some of the simplest ones had the most revisions. Some of the more complicated ones have relatively few. But that second shaping is always part of it because it's the shaping that comes after I know what the poem is, after I know where it went, what it was trying to think about, what all of these, you know, what what dish went into the stew pot ingredient by ingredient by ingredient. And that tells you whether you want to add some lemon zest or some uh, cayenne pepper. You write so much, at least in my interpretation, about the duality that's inside of us and the multitude perhaps, of the people inside of us that were kind of always changing. Some poems that made me think about that were in Ulvik, or you can go to sleep in one room and wake in another. So we can talk about that concept, but I'm also wondering if, as a writer, if that ever, if the many people inside of you is ever a hindrance. Like when you sat down to write this poem you just talked about and you were in kind of one frame of mind, Maybe you come back and you're sort of like a different Jane when you go back to to maybe edit it or keep writing it. And is that ever difficult or is that not even a fair question? Hmm. Well, it's a wonderfully interesting question. I, I think a poem is only good when it can speak to um, each of the different moods and modes of being human that all of us inhabit you know, one day into the next, you're, you're never the same person twice. And this is perhaps one reason why part of my revision process has a, has a great deal to do with time. So I finish a poem, and then I immediately start revising it. And then I walk away from the poem, maybe for only five minutes, because I'm very interested in what it's doing. And then I come back, and I'm seeing it with five-minute different eyes. And then I might walk away for an hour, and then I might walk away for five hours, and then I might walk away for five days, five weeks, five months. And so many different uh, states of being that travel inside this skin and call themselves Jane have all contributed to helping that poem find its final shape on the page in its words in its grammar, in its verb tenses. And you hope that if it satisfies, you know, the many different versions of myself who have spent time with it, if if all of those versions of me 
still find it interesting, think it holds something, think there's some discovery being being made, some shift of being enacted, recreated, made possible, made passable from one person to another, then with luck, at least some other people will find in it what I find in it. Um, I, I do... the. The, the sense of the manyness of each of us is very central to my way of feeling my life and feeling the world. And one of my favorite poems, which I will not be able to recite for you, um, but which is probably available online with an easy search, is a poem by Pablo Neruda with the title, We Are Many. And he is describing exactly this. There is another poem, uh, Borges and I, by, by Borges, in which he is describing exactly this. So it, it is, I think, you know, it might not be universal amongst writers, but it's certainly something that other writers besides me have not only felt, but have, have written about quite directly. Do you want to talk at all about those poems that I mentioned about the duality um, in Ulvik, or you go to sleep in one room and wake in another, or we can talk about some other poems? Well, uh, you know, I'd love to do both of them, but I think I'm going to pick in Ulvik because it's a little more cheerful than most of my poems are. So again, I assume I should read it. Yes. Um, Sure. So, so uh, th- this poem's genesis was in um, a little biography of a Norwegian poet, Olaf Hauge, and I was reading along. I-, I-, I like his poems very much, and he had a he had an interesting and sad life in that he he was a great poet with a great propensity to fall into severe deep depression. So he spent his life, as as uh, the the epigraph to the poem says, he spent his whole life in Ulvik working as a gardener in his own orchard. He had eight acres of apple trees, and according to Robert Bly, who visited him there, uh, the most capacious poetry library in all of Norway. And from time to time, he would go into a mental hospital until they helped him find his feet again, and and then he would go back to his eight-acre orchard. Um, So in Ulvik, he spent his whole life in Ulvik working as a gardener in his own orchard. I, too, would like to work as a gardener in my own orchard. Every Friday, I would pay myself a decent living wage taken in foldable cash from my own wallet. And sometimes, if the weather was bad, I would give myself the day off and thank myself for my kindness and answer myself, it's nothing, nothing, go on now, put your feet up, find somewhere warm. And then I would go back into my house and think of my kindness and wonder if my gardener was warm now also, and if I was right to let myself go away from my own orchard's tending even so briefly. And each of us might be thinking, too, of the apples, cold and wet and hanging in outside wind and fattening on their own trees without us, and one of us first, then the other, might start to wonder a little while pushing a cut of cured apple wood into the fire about loneliness and separateness and what it is lives outside one person's skin and inside 
another's. And so the poem, you know, triggered by the odd phrasing in the biographical note, had me suddenly exploring, you know, the self as two people, you know, the owner of the orchard and then the gardener working for the owner. And the premise of it just felt to me very close to the way we do sometimes experience our own lives as multiple in point of view, in task. I mean, most of us are multitasking most of the time. We don't have only one identity. And I was just kind of charmed by the idea of that. And eventually in the poem, you know, the apples become part of the self as well. You worry about them and, and the apple tree wood and the fire. And it all becomes a meditation upon exactly this question of, you know, uh, starting to wonder a little about loneliness and separateness and what it is lives outside one person's skin and inside another's. We are strangers even to ourselves at times, let alone the strangers we are to each other. Yeah, this idea too of of skin and and our body being a vessel. I wanted to ask you about there are a lot of poems that I really liked like as my favorites, but I think my absolute favorite was Pelt. Oh, thank you. And so I wanted to ask you, it's in a series, uh, your, your book is separated into sections, and this one is in a series where all of the poems are, are pretty brief. They all start with an address to Little Soul, which I think is a reference back to Hadrian. Is that how you pronounce That's exactly right. Yes. The the first century Roman Emperor Hadrian. So if you want to talk a little bit about sort of this series in this section and then maybe read Pelt and, and talk about that. So the little soul poems, they take their their opening address, Little Soul, from a poem written by the first century Roman Emperor Hadrian on his own deathbed. As far as we know, it's the only poem that Hadrian wrote. It's certainly the only one we have. And he speaks to his own departing life with this affectionate, diminutive word, little soul. It's a beautiful, sweet poem. I can paraphrase it, you know, little soul, pale, wandering, um, uh, what are you going to do now without me uh, when we can't any longer make our old jokes together? Um, there, there are better translations than that. Uh, but that's the full poem. And these poems were precipitated by the illness and death of the man who was my first great love long ago and who I had stayed close friends with and, and was uh, close with uh, both him and his wife during the three years of his dying and then death from, from glioblastoma. But the poems aren't entirely about him. They're also about each of our dying, my own dying, all of our dying. And so the poems take slightly different um, stances and points of view towards this. But as a whole, 
they were my working through of my own grief, both the grief before his death and the grief that followed it. And some were written before he died and some were written after he had died. Um, this one comes from before. It's called Pelt. Little soul, the book of your hours is closing over its golds, its reds, your gazing dog, your rivers, ladders, ribcage. A life turns into its patterns and perfumes, then into its pelt. I don't know now if we were one, if we were two, a stippling. Whither thou goest, we'd said. The poem can be read either way, and it would be correct either way. To see it as being about someone else, a man who, in fact, I didn't marry but might have, that's correct. But to read it as being about contemplating my own life, I don't know now if we were one, if we were two, a stippling, whither thou goest, we'd said. That's also right. I knew when I was writing it that it could mean both those things, and probably a great many others that I haven't spelled out, but maybe you could. I found that I was attracted to a lot of the poems that had to do with the separation of the body and the soul, and that I think in the Western world, we don't, we think about death, we're scared about it a lot, but I don't think we think about the body that much. I don't think we talk about it a lot. So I liked the title and I loved the idea of that a life turns into its patterns and perfumes, then into its pelt. And it's so animalistic too. Yes. And of course we do, you know, uh, uh, that can, like many images, the wonderful things about images in poetry is you have the actual thing, you have the pelt of an animal, um, and then you have all the things that can be unfolded from that image. So, you know, a person's, the consequences of their actions are their pelt. The poems I've written will be my pelt. Uh, this man was a carpenter. He left behind a great deal of beauty in the world. That's part of his pelt. Um, all, all these things are, uh, you know, the continuation of the patterns and perfumes, even with the huge, enormous, subtractive grief of a person dying. I try in a great many of my poems to not land on one definition or another of what a life is, what an event is. Uh, I try, I don't think poems are about drawing conclusions. Poems are about drawing mystery in a way that allows you to enter it and allows you to abide and keep breathing amid the great uncertainty that is part of all of our lives. Every moment, every moment is a great uncertainty. And we push that away as much as we push away you know, what you just said, uh, our own embodiment, our own thoroughly embodied existence. For most people, or for many people, that can be 
uncomfortably humbling, but I happen to love being humbled. I, I find humility a great pleasure. Um, you know, not being shamed, but humility isn't shame. It's it's something quite different. It's feeling oneself a tiny thread in the large fabric of existence. For me, that's a happiness. You know, one of the things that coronavirus has has made me think about, especially now that we're into it and um, we've lived with it for a while and as things slowly start to open up, I think the idea of vigilance is really important. And I, I, I wonder sometimes if vigilance is stronger than our desire to be connected and to touch other human beings and to be around other human beings. And your poem, Armor Fati, Amor Fati. Yeah. That made me think about kind of in the end how we can't resist connection after wandering alone. That's something that I took out of it. I'm wondering if you want to talk about it. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting uh, this moment reading of the poem. So Amor Fati is uh, a Latin phrase uh, which basically, you know, literally it means the love of fate. Uh, Nietzsche picked up this idea, uh, and many, many other people have. It, it basically is the idea that we do best when we can embrace our own lives, whatever shape they have. You know, Rather than flee your own life, want your own life. So here's the poem. Amor Fati. Little soul, you have wandered lost a long time. The woods all dark now, birded and eyed. Then a light, a cabin, a fire, a door standing open. The fairy tales warn you, do not go in. You who would eat will be eaten. You go in. You quicken. You want to have feet. You want to have eyes. You want to have fears. And so, yes, the poem is very much a poem about agreeing to risk life, agreeing to risk intimacy, agreeing to risk illness, agreeing to risk loss. That's what birth is. You know, birth is you, you, you sign a contract the moment you enter this world saying, um, yeah, I will be eaten. I will be eaten. I will be tormented. I will be terrified. And I will get to live, and it's worth it. Now, as far as the coronavirus goes and, and vigilance, I have a word I, I would prefer to vigilance, which would be mindfulness. And the thing about mindfulness is, you know, practically, it's talking about the same thing. It's talking about Always being aware that, you know, if you cough and, and you don't have a, a face covering of some kind and you're ill and you don't know it yet, you could sicken strangers, you could sicken someone you love, you could, you know, again, that what, what, what thought, what act doesn't matter. You have no idea what the consequences will be. But in mindfulness, I think you can find that even not feeling 
the warm embrace of the person you love physically, because for some reason you're not living together, uh, you know, maybe, and it might be your mother rather than your lover that, that, you, that you're missing the touch of. In mindfulness, you can find the intimacy that is possible. And so it's not all about only fear. It's certainly not about only defensiveness or self-protection. It's about honoring everyone's ability to still be here next week, next month, next year. And you can feel such a huge surge of intimacy without necessarily touching a person. You can, you know, waves and waves and waves of absolute intimacy are completely possible looking into somebody's eyes over your face mask. And gratitude and praise and the knowledge that one of these days we're going to be past all of this. And meanwhile, you know, lucky humans, we have words. Uh, words are a very safe way of embracing one another. We can do that. You can say, I love you. Uh, on, a, on another random note, it made me think, maybe we need a line of poetry or haiku face coverings. That's a marvelous idea. I love that. Yes, yes, please. Every every listener who's who's craft able, please do that. So I have been haunted by um, one haiku has traveled with me throughout this pandemic time, uh, and it changed its meaning for me during this time, which was really interesting. So it's a it's a haiku by one of the three great famous uh, uh, traditional haiku writers, uh, who who are uh, Basho, Isa, and Busan. This is by the middle one, Isa, who lived in the seventeenth, eighteenth century, somewhere in there, eighteenth, I think. Um, and what he wrote was. We walk on the roof of hell, gathering blossoms. Now, I've loved that poem for a long time. We walk on the roof of hell, gathering blossoms. Until recently, I always heard it as carrying a kind of bitterness. That, you know, here we are, we oblivious human beings, uh, gathering flowers, not paying any attention to the enormous realms of suffering that we are ignoring as we do this. That was my old reading of it. And I loved the poem for saying that. It certainly felt very true. But as we came into the pandemic time, something shifted. And I'm not sure if saying this will, will bring that shift to you. But I began to feel a greater sense of equality between the suffering of the hell realms and the necessity of the flowers. And I began to realize, you know, any day, here we are in the middle of this catastrophe, and it is a catastrophe which is going to have repercussions beyond those of, of health. Uh, you know, it's going to have tremendous repercussions in people's 
economic lives, in the kind of society we live in, in what we are able to do when everything is going to change. And I have no idea whether for better or worse. So here we are walking on the roof of hell, those of us who are walking, who aren't sick, who aren't frontline health providers. And the gathering of the blossoms, that is not wrong. That actually matters. Because after all, what is it we want to live for if not to turn suffering into flowers? If not to have this fragrance to see this glorious world in which even as people are dying, the whole spring has unfolded. From the earliest fruit trees, apricot blossoms, plum blossoms, to now my garden has its, its full flush of roses going. And that is what we want to live for. That is what we want others to live for, so that they will have no joy in their lives. You know, joy is kind of almost as ignored as, as you're saying that the body is. You know, but joy, joy gets a bad rap because it seems trivial. Um, but joy in the face of mortality, fragrance in the face of its own perishing. That's why you have so many Japanese haiku about the vanishing plum blossoms is exactly because knowing they will vanish and taking in their scent and their beauty and recognizing that that is exactly what any human life is in the long run. Uh, this matters tremendously. And it changes the quality of how you feel each moment. If you know in each moment we walk on the roof of hell gathering blossoms and you don't ignore either. I'm wondering if you can read a section from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. One of the poets who was a great influence on me, both from the moment I first read a poem of his, which was um, fairly late in my life as a poet. It was in, in 1979, uh, Echo Press brought out the book uh, Bells in Winter by a not very well-known Polish poet named Czesław Miłosz. In 1980, Miłosz won the Nobel Prize and became a better-known poet. Um, from the first poem that I read in Bells in Winter, I felt like a new landscape of, of, of uh, human awareness had come into me, a new landscape of poetry-making had come into me. I, I recognized his greatness literally from the first, you know, six or eight lines that, that I read. Um, but because uh, this program is a program about writing and writing process, I'm not going to give you that poem. I'm going to give you not the full poem, but some stanzas from his poem, Ars Poetica, and uh, you know, so the art of poetry, that famous uh, phrase first first used by Aristotle and used by most poets ever since. And Miłosz's Ars Poetica, uh, the title ends with a question mark. And it opens, I have always aspired to a more spacious form that would be free from the claims of poetry or prose and would let us understand each other without exposing the author or reader to sublime agonies. 
in the very essence of poetry, there is something indecent. A thing is brought forth which we didn't know we had in us, so we blink our eyes as if a tiger had sprung out and stood in the light, lashing his tail. That's why poetry is rightly said to be dictated by a daimonium. Though it's an exaggeration to maintain that he must be an angel, it's hard to guess where that pride of poets comes from when so often they're put to shame by the disclosure of their frailty. What reasonable man would like to be a city of demons who behave as if they were at home, speak in many tongues, and who, not satisfied with stealing his lips or hand, work at changing his destiny for their convenience. Now I'm going to skip a few stanzas and go to the last two. Uh, the purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. For our house is open, there are no keys in the doors, and invisible guests come in and out at will. What I'm saying here is not, I agree, poetry, as poems should be written rarely and reluctantly, under unbearable duress, and only with the hope that good spirits, not evil ones, choose us for their instrument. Isn't that marvelous? And there again, you have, you know, what we were talking about earlier when he says the purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. So something that I loved in Neruda, something that appears in my own poems, something I loved in Borges, and here it is in one of my fa favorite poems by Czesław Miłosz. That thirst he has for a more spacious form, to be willing to be inhabited by things we didn't know we had in us. You know, so many of the themes of our conversation, I picked this poem before we had this conversation, but so many of the themes in it show up in, in what I've just read you, which means either that I love Miłosz because he was in accord with how I already felt, or that reading Miłosz changed who I am as a human being. And I think both those things are probably true. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Well, yes, I can. But of course, it's going to be a dense, difficult poem because, because of that. So this was one of the um, hardest poems in this book, Ledger, for me to write. And it ended up being frightening me because it ends with the darkest thought I think I have ever had as a poet or as a person. Uh, the title is Hazal for the End of Time. And then it says after Messian and people who know uh, the composer Messian's piece Quartet for the End of Time. Uh, that, is, that is where it got its starting idea from. Um, a Hazal is a Urdu poetry traditional form uh, that when used strictly has, has uh, two long-lined couplets with very specific metrical aspects to them and a repeating word throughout the poem. My poem is a loose hazal, what I would call an American hazal, in that the repeating word uh, changes to other words that have the same sound but aren't necessarily uh, exactly that word. Hazal for the end of time. Break anything, a window, a pie crust, a glacier. 
it will break open. A voice cannot speak, cannot sing, without lips, teeth, lamina propria coming open. Some breakage can barely be named, hardly be spoken. Rains stopped, Ruth said. Fires, forests, cities, cellars peeled open. Tears stopped, eyes said. An unhearable music fell instead from them. A clarinet stripped of its breathing, the cello abandoned. The violin grieving, a hand too long empty held open. The imperial piano, its 89th, 90th, 91st strings, unsummoned, unwoken. Watching, listening, was like that the low, wordless humming of being unwoven. Fish vanished, bees vanished, bats whitened, arctic ice opened. Hands wanted more time, hands thought we had time, spending time's rivers, its meadows, its mountains, its instruments tuning their silence, its deep mantle broken. Earth stumbled within and outside us. Orca, thistle, kestrel withheld their instruction. Rock said, burning ones, pry your own blindness open. Death said, now I too am orphan. So the poem was very difficult to write. First of all, because it was something I hardly ever agreed to do. It was a commissioned poem. And my muse does not like to take requests. And the request was very general. It was for an anthology coming out from Princeton University Press, where a number of different people, uh, not all writers, uh, one, one of them in the book, I'm looking forward to seeing it, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, they asked a number of people to write about music. And they decided to have a half dozen poems in there. And there's music references in a lot of my poems. And I had almost a year from when I was asked. And I thought, oh, I, I, I'll write something with, with music in it that, that, that will work. And I hadn't. And the deadline was coming close. And so then I was flailing. What, what, what can I write about music? But, so simply to find the poem in the first place was very difficult. And once I thought of the Messian piece, Quartet for the End of Time, then I was tied back into the subject I was writing about a great deal, which was the crisis of the biosphere, the imagination of the end of the world, the living world as we know it. And then I could start. But as so often is the case for me, when I have trouble writing, I have an idea, but I can't find the poem. Often for me, the life raft is to turn towards sound. And so I have, people don't think of me as a formal poet. They don't think of me as a poet who uses rhyme. But there's rhyming poems throughout my work. They're just not perfectly rhyming poems. Um, once I found that beginning sentence, break anything, a window, a pie crust, a glacier, it will break open. Then I could at least start writing it. 
And, and, you know, look at the line. It goes from an ordinary thing that gets broken all the time, a window, a pie crust, another ordinary thing we, we prefer not to break if we're trying to make a good pie, and then a glacier. And that's the hint that the poem is talking about climate crisis. Uh, so if you break anything, it will break open. That word became the sort of key to the door that let me start writing the poem. What happens when things break open? They're not just breaking, they're breaking open. And that duality allowed me to start writing. But the poem took weeks. And I wrote a lot of it, again, very unusually for me. I wrote it um, while outside moving. Every end of day, uh, something I'll do as soon as we finish our interview, every end of day, I go out and I, I do something which does not deserve the verb run. I call it a trundle because it is so slow and, and, and ungainly. Uh, it doesn't even deserve the word jog. But I go out onto the streets and trails near me, which, which go up and down a fair bit. There are steps, there are hills. And looking for the rhymes of this poem, I would say to myself, by heart, memorized what lines I had, and look for the next rhyme which would give me the next line which would have whatever meaning in it it had. And so the whole poem was written and revised on the hoof, so to speak. Um, I've done that once before in my life, uh, but it helped me because I was trying to say things which were almost unbearable to say unbearable to imagine. It was a very hard poem to end. And when I did end it, when I came to this thought, so a formal hazal, in the penultimate line, the poet says their own name. Um, I don't say my own name. I say all of our name. Rock said burning ones goes right back to that earlier poem of the kerosene beauty. It burned. We who are heating the climate. Rock said, burning ones, pry your own blindness open. Death said, now I too am orphan. The word orphan came because it's a slant rhyme to the word open. But the idea of death, what would it mean for death to be an orphan? It would mean there were no life at all. That thought is just an abyss for me. For death to not exist, for death to have no parents, no children, it would, no family, it would mean that every last living being were gone. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. The earth is full of resilient species. Cockroaches are pretty good. Rodents are pretty good. We human beings are pretty good at surviving under vastly changed circumstances. But the poem imagined its way toward that because, after all, the title is Hazal for the End of Time. And if there is no time, that also means no living people, because time, the physicists tell us, uh, isn't an outer quality of existence. It is an epiphenomenon of 
the observing living person who feels time moving forward and having an end to it. So it was a very hard poem to write, and I'm sorry to inflict it on our listeners. It's a hard poem to hear, too, I think. Where do you write? I write wherever I can feel undistracted and protected and uninterrupted. So over my life, this has changed a great deal depending on the circumstances of my life. These days, when I'm in my own house, I often write first thing in the morning, which is a startling thing because I've never been a morning person. I'm not a morning person. But if you wake up before the world can have any say to you, it is quiet and undisturbed and uninterrupted. And so I often write in bed with my morning cup of coffee. Uh, Sometimes I am able to go off to one of these uh, palace refuges, castles of, of art making, like the Rauschenberg Foundation on Captiva Island or uh, McDowell in New Hampshire or Yaddo in upstate New York. These are places where they feed you three meals a day and say, please make your art. And I have done that quite regularly over my adult life, and it's made a huge difference to my ability to sustain concentration day after day after day because you have, in my case, I go for a month and I know I have this one month to make use of and I do not want to waste a moment of it because it is such a gift of the world to give an artist a place where they can work without interruption for a month and the company of the other artists at dinner where you often get an interesting idea, a provocative thought, a phrase. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? That is something I never want to do because I'm not a prolific person. And so except when I'm at one of those artist retreats, um, I am longing to write, not trying to get away from it. And so, you know, that that line in uh, the poem by Miłosz that that I uh, read, let's see, what what did he say? Uh, uh, What I'm saying here is not I agree poetry as poems should be written rarely and reluctantly. So when I was young, I was very prolific and I might write three poems in a day. But as I've gone through my life, I write more and more rarely. So I never want to get away from writing. I only want to get towards it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I don't. Um, I, I have no one. I, usually the first person who sees a poem is uh, whatever journal editor I've, I've sent it to. Uh, when I, again, when I was younger, I, I did this. I, you know, I, I never went to graduate school, but I went to an adult ed workshop that was offered by UC Berkeley. And some of my closest poetry friends are still people who Um, I made the initial connection with through that now rather famous and long-vanished adult ed workshop. Uh, But I participated in that process for a little while afterwards. I I was trading poems with people. And then what I discovered, this is a terrible thing to have to admit, but I mostly didn't take their suggestions after a while. I wanted to make my own mistakes. I wanted to be odd in the ways that I needed to be odd. And so 
there's a price for that. You know, every once in a while you find out that a poem can be understood completely differently than how you intended it to be and not in a way which is good. Sometimes that's in ways that's good and sometimes it's not. But I just found I, I just wasn't taking people's advice. And so I stopped uh, asking for any. Every once in a great while, if I have a particular question, you know, I have two different choices. I'm not sure it works. I have two friends of very different aesthetics and very different, you know, both superb poets, but but very different superb poets. And, you know, I can, I can ask them a question and and get an answer, but I almost never do. How have you dealt with rejection? I look at rejection as an opportunity to do two things. One is look and see if whatever was rejected could be made better. You know, it's 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 a great chance to say, all right, you know, is there some revision I haven't I haven't found yet? And often I might find a word or a phrase or or something that that could be made better. So it's somebody saying this this wasn't good enough for me, and I can look and say, well, is it still good enough for me? Um, and then you know if I've changed it or if I haven't changed it, it's a great opportunity to send it to the next person. Because after all, every every editor is different and there's no one on earth who's going to love every single thing that I do or even anything that I do. And my job in terms of this negotiation of, of poems and the public, uh, my job is to help the poems find their way to the people who might find something in them that is worth the gift of their giving them a few minutes of their attention. And what is your favorite word? Ah. So a long time ago, my favorite word was you. As a young writer, an enormous percentage of my poems began with the word you. All I had to do was murmur you and a poem would follow it. I found it an awakening word because, you know, to say you means you're immediately in the circumstances of relationship and dialogue. You're in the moment. You're in the intimacy of speech. Um, and, you know, you also, I'm, I'm quite in love with the pronoun because it has seven or nine different meanings in poems. And I have an hour long lecture where I walk people through what those are. Um, but it was it was a sort of password. It was a key word for me. Um, now I write fewer poems with you in them, although some have it. Um, but I might say one of my favorite words is whatever word not only have I never used before, but possibly the entire lexicon of English poetry has never used before. And you only get to use that favorite word once, but um, I'm... I'm quite pleased that long ago I wrote a poem that had a badger colostrum in it because I just thought, I bet there is no other badger colostrum in all of English literature. And so I just thought that was kind of fun. And, and more recently, I have a poem that has naturetic polypeptide B in it. And again, you know, probably a first appearance in, in poetry. So that made me happy. But really what I want to say, long answer. Um, my favorite word isn't a word, it's a punctuation mark. And it's the question mark, I think is my 
favorite word, um, both because I love poems that do ask explicit questions in them. And I find many of my poems that I hold dearest, when I look at them, I go, oh, look, it has a, it has a question in it. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Um, but also, I think poems begin and end in the larger spirit of questioning. Uh, they, you write a poem because you have some question that no other constellation of thought and feeling is going to be able to respond to other than this particular poem. And you finish a poem not the way, you know, you uh, end a piece of sewing by doing four little knots to hold the thread in place. But when you finish a poem, I at least am always hoping that it might lead to the next question, that it opens a door rather than slams a door shut. Um, I like questions. I like questions better than answers. I'd, 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 Answers are good for some things. I don't. I don't want to sound like I want to go through the world never baking a cake successfully. You know, recipes are good, but the recipes that poems exist to make are recipes of something so ephemerally hard to hold on to that the only way you can find that experience is by the alchemical process of putting those words through your own mind and heart and tongue and ears and throat and muscles until the epiphanic realization that that poem holds. That sounds very grand. Sometimes it's very small. Some, you know, jokes do the same thing. A good joke, you laugh at a hundred times because you can't hold on to what it's saying. You can only experience the process of what it's doing. And that's what I want poems to do. So my favorite word is going to be the question mark. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I've, I've greatly enjoyed your questions, your presence as a reader. I think you don't talk half enough in your, in your podcasts because you have such, uh, you have obviously such great insights, but I guess you've done enough of them that, Maybe at this point you prefer to listen, which I often do myself. <laughs> um, so thank you for having me. It's, it's a privilege. And thank you for reading my book so closely. I, I deeply appreciate that. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Jane Hirschfield, author of Ledger. If you like today's show, check out my interview with poet Ada Limon. We talked about her collection, Bright Dead Things. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Tara Shea Nesbitt, Michelle Bowdler, and Marie Mutsuki Mockett. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.